Let's pray before we get into the word. Father God, we come before you just uh, truly grateful and um, seeking to have the, the spirit of joy as we uh, approach Christmas and um, even approach this time in your word. Uh, even though my voice is weak right now, God, thank you for your grace, which is sufficient for me and for all of us. And it's um, when we are weak, when the power of Christ is perfected in us. So I pray that for our time now. May this be a joyful and uh, wonderful and encouraging and enlightening and edifying time for all of us as we conclude our, our series on Jesus' return. So I thank you for this time now. We lift it up to you. Thankful for everyone here and everyone on the live stream. In Christ's name, amen. All right, this is part five of five, being prepared for Jesus' return. Our subtitle today is Back to the Future. And um, before we get into what we're going to talk about, I just want to do a really quick uh, brief refresh of what we've learned to this point as far as eschatology goes and just our understanding of the end times uh, events. Right now, as we speak, we are in the church age, uh, that time in between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. And so who knows how long it's going to um, last, but the next event that's going to happen is the rapture, according to our understanding of Scripture. And following that will be the Great Tribulation, which Jesus has talked extensively about, uh, both broadly and specifically in the Olivet Discourse, which we've covered in Mark chapter 13. That's going to last for seven years, and at the end of that, Jesus is going to come in his glorious return to earth, bringing all glorified believers of all ages with him. He's going to judge the people who are still alive at that time, believers and unbelievers, sheep and the goats, and um, that is going to bring us and bring everyone and bring believers, actually, into the millennial kingdom. And so the, the believers uh, of that time and the glorified saints will be the citizens of that kingdom, and um, Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. So, as I said, our, our principle remains through all of this. We are exhorted as Christ followers, as disciples of Christ, uh, to always be prepared for his coming. And we should anticipate that with eagerness, um, but most importantly, with faith and faithfulness all the way to the end. So today, we are going to, and you have a little uh, thing in your bulletin there, but today is um, the millennial kingdom. Uh, that's where I landed, and it was actually supposed to be the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. But um, to be honest, I'm not even going to cover everything that could be covered for the millennial kingdom. I'm just trying to highlight some very uh, important and significant things that uh, we should know and understand and, at the end, apply. Okay? So uh, as we approach uh, that, that one and only point today, as you know, there's always going to be a few subpoints. But um, note from Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, uh, it reveals that when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth, this kingdom is going to endure how long? Forever. Forever. Daniel 2 verse 44 says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will itself endure forever. 
And then Daniel 7, verse 14, says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So we learned that uh, the return of Christ okay, can be thought of as like two phases, right? Two stages. We learned that. There's the rapture, and then there's the glorious return to earth. So also the future kingdom of God can be thought of as having these two distinct phases. The first phase is that millennial kingdom. And the second phase is the eternal state. And it seems that the millennial kingdom ruled by Christ on earth for a thousand years, in some sense, merges into the eternal kingdom. It's interrupted, obviously, by everything being destroyed, right? And then comes the new heavens and new earth. But, um, but it continues. And so we need to understand those uh, passages in Daniel and um, elsewhere that uh, when, when he says it's an everlasting kingdom, when Jesus' reign on earth starts, it's never going to be destroyed. It's not going to be, you know, uh, just, it's not going to, to end. Okay? It's going to merge into the eternal state, and Jesus is going to continue ruling. So let's get into this, the millennial kingdom. Like I said, I'm not going to say everything, but I'm just going to highlight a few things. And so basically, here's the subpoints: The purpose, the purpose of the millennial kingdom, and the characteristics of the millennial kingdom. Okay, and, and lastly is going to be some concluding thoughts and okay? how we want to apply and, and think correctly about all these things. So purpose, characteristics, and concluding thoughts. And I think we already know from Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, is where we get the length of the kingdom. Okay, it's a thousand years because Revelation 24 through 6 says it six times. I think that's a good indicator that we should pay attention and uh, understand that that's a, a literal 1,000 years. And um, it's, it's said there half a dozen times so that we would get it. Okay? So let's look at the purpose of the millennial kingdom. Okay, God is going to reestablish his rulership over the earth through Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, King Jesus. By God's permission... Satan has temporarily operated as what? The ruler of this world, right? The prince of the power of the air. The millennial kingdom brings the earth back to Christ, who will rule with the rod of iron. This has been prophesied of and promised in the Old Testament. I'll just give you some scriptures here. Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. Also Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, God will fulfill all of his covenant promises to Israel. Okay, this is one of the primary purposes of this kingdom on earth. And so, these covenants are going to be fulfilled then. The tribulation, as we learned, was used to bring Israel back to himself. They're going to repent. They're going to turn to God at some point throughout those years. And at the end, uh, as a nation, individual Jews will be saved from judgment They're going to be mourning those tears of repentance uh, at the time of Christ's coming. Many will believe then and will be brought into the 
the kingdom ruling with Christ the king. So can we go back for, for a second to Genesis chapter 12? Because I just want us to look at this, um, these promises that were made with Israel. And it starts all the way back in Genesis 12. And uh, promises to Abraham, which is known as the Abrahamic covenant, right? Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, listen to these promises, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 15 um, reiterates and expands on that. Okay, Genesis 15, verses 4 to 21. And then you, every like few chapters or so in Genesis, you, you read it being repeated. But I want us to understand that Abraham received these unilateral, unconditional promises from God. Okay, unilateral means one way. Like Abraham, he, he, just, he was re, on the receiving end. Okay, God was making the promise. That's what a covenant is. So what did God promise in Genesis 12 that, that we just read? He promised Abram a son, a nation, a reputation, a specific land, and universal blessing of the world through his seed, right? So we see from the Old Testament, nearly all the promises that, um, of God have been literally, literally fulfilled. Abraham had a son, Isaac, who was born miraculously. He fathered a nation, the Israelites. And Abraham does, even today, have a great reputation. He said, I will make your name great, right? The world's major religions all recognize him. And the greatest blessing of all has come to the nations, to the world, through his seed. Namely, Jesus, the Savior of the world. So that brings up the question, the one promise left, right? The promise of land. He promised them, specifically, land. Genesis 15, we could read that, but I'm just going to commend that to you. 15, 4 to 21. What about the land? Well, the Jews do have land, which is the nation of Israel. But the promise was actually for more land than than this uh, when you read through the scriptures. And importantly, it was for peaceful possession of the land for the rest of human history. That was the promise. That was the, the covenant. And clearly... This has not yet been fulfilled, right? The Middle East has been a mess for forever. So the millennial kingdom is when this promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. All of the land, every square inch of it, and it will be peacefully possessed, as hard as that is to imagine. But this is the very purpose of the millennial kingdom. God will keep his word. So we as pre-millennialists believe in the consistency of our our hermeneutics, our Bible interpretation, that if all the other promises to Abraham were literally fulfilled, okay, not in some allegorical or spiritual sense, the promise of land is going to be fulfilled too. Okay? So um, another major covenant in the Bible is the Davidic covenant. And that's found in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, the promises to David. 
So verses 8 through 16. So uh, if you want to turn there or just listen. 2 Samuel 7 is where the Davidic covenant is found. Starting in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, or your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. Verse 14. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Where he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And then verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so there's, there's a lot there, uh, obviously, but uh, just wanting to highlight, King David received a promise that his descendant or descendants would rule Israel in peace. Okay? And um, part of this was, it's, it's part of that um, initial or near fulfillment, which has greater uh, implications. So Solomon is, is part of this uh, fulfillment of some of what is being said here. But it says there that he would rule this descendant in, a, in peace in a kingdom that would last forever. And this is a, a solemn oath, a solemn covenant from God to David. It's unbreakable because it comes from God. And once again, this, not, this has not yet happened, literally. Okay, but it will, it will in the millennial kingdom, also known as the messianic kingdom. Um, it's also called the mediatorial kingdom. So uh, before we get to the, the, the next point of the characteristics, um, I just want us to look at a few Old Testament prophecies. Okay, can we turn to Psalm 2 for a moment? And this is known as a messianic psalm, one among many in the Psalter. Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9. And the psalmist writes, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Okay, this, is, this is going to be um, fulfilled 
happening in that millennial kingdom. How about uh, Jeremiah chapter 3? We're going to scoot on here uh, a few verses, a few passages. I just want to give you a, a, a smattering of, of verses uh, throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 2, again, is um, mentioned along with Isaiah 24. But Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah 3. I just want us to see this with our own eyes okay, and, and listen to it. Um, Millennial kingdom references all the way back in the Old Testament. So Jeremiah 3, verses, starting in verse 15, we're going to go to 18. And so it says there, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say, The ark of the covenant of the Lord, and will not come to mind, nor will they remember it. Nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again, the Ark of the Covenant. So no Ark in the Millennial Kingdom. 17. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. It's all going to happen, folks. It will happen. Um, you can jot down Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 45. You can look that up later. But I want us to turn now to Hosea chapter 3. And if you get nothing else out of this, you're getting some practice uh, looking at the minor, where the minor prophets are. Okay, Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. Hosea chapter 3. Verses 4 and 5. It says there, Hosea 3, starting in verse 4. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Right? I think this is the last one. It's going to be the next book over. No. Uh, the next, next book uh, is Joel chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. But I want us to go to the next one after that, which is Amos. Amos chapter 9. Amos 9. Once again, just follow along or listen well uh, to this this passage, this last part of uh, Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, reads like this. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Verse 13. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. And the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. When the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land. and They will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them says the Lord your God. This is the last verses of the prophet Amos. And so, 
Let me just uh, give you another reference. Obadiah, verses 10 to 21. There's only one chapter in Obadiah. So verses 10 to 21. Micah 4, verses 7 to 8. I'm just uh, giving you these to, to jot them down. Um, actually, the last one I'll read to you is Zechariah 14, verse 9. Zechariah 14, verse 9. It simply says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. So these prophetic scriptures predicted many specific things for Israel which have not yet been fulfilled. Whether it was international prominence or personal and global prosperity and peace, whether it was access, direct access to God for Israel, um, none of those things have happened yet. And as for the nations, we see these passages speak of universal conversion, all coming to God, their inclusion in the people of God. So these Messianic Psalms, the major and minor prophets, these scriptures, it becomes clear that God will not ever permanently abandon the Jews. Almost all the prophets include or end with passages about Israel's restoration. Judgments and curses seem to always precede that, right? But then you read all the way to the end, and it's preservation. It's restoration. And uh, we already went over Romans 11 as the, the natural branches, right? Israel are regrafted into the olive tree, their own olive tree, Romans eleven twenty four. So this is exactly what happens in the millennial kingdom. So with all these promises to Israel in Old Testament scripture, not yet fulfilled, there's just so clear, so detailed, so many. I only gave you a, a, a few of them. It's really hard for me to think that they're supposed to be understood as merely spiritual promises that are fulfilled by Jesus in the church, hey, as, as in covenant theology, right? The church is the new Israel. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem that the uh, hermeneutical principles are being consistently applied. And so uh, we're trying to stay as consistent as possible in our interpretation of every area of theology in the Bible, including eschatology, including prophecy, and we understand that there's figures of speech. We understand there's symbols. We understand them. But they have to be understood in their context. Okay? So that's the point, uh, folks. We believe that God will accomplish what he has stated and what he has promised. Many times over, he promised land, peace, prominence, prosperity to Israel. He's going to fulfill them in the millennial kingdom. All right? So let's go to the next point. The characteristics of millennial kingdom and we want to note I might have mentioned this before but we want to note that John chapter or Revelation chapter 20 um, is is the only place in scripture where the length the duration of the kingdom is is uh, given to us in scripture but um, as far as the characteristics of that kingdom it's found throughout the Old Testament again the Old Testament prophecy so um, under the characteristics of the kingdom, let's first look at the government. And we're going to have brief subpoints uh, in this. The government of the millennial kingdom. Jesus, the Messiah, is going to rule and reign as king. Okay, again, fulfilling the Davidic covenant pro- prophecies. He'll be ruling over a united Israel, and Jerusalem will be the center of his kingdom. 
Israel is going to have a special role and relationship with King Jesus as they're the recipients of that covenant. But as the King of Kings, Jesus will also rule over the Gentile nations as their sovereign Lord. I could give you a bunch of verses, but um, just let it go there. Okay, he's going to be the almighty and all-benevolent ruler of the entire earth's governments. Okay, it's, once again, um, I love to try to imagine these things happening and Jesus being on the earth and the world not being the way it is right now. Okay, we know that every government in this entire nation, even our blessed nation, which I think has been just an incredible grace of God, an experiment that has, has been like no other in history, um, and yet, it's so corrupt, right? There's so much corruption and, and cheating and lying and scandal and all that. Okay? Um, Jesus is going to rule. And it seems, according to some scriptures, that believers are going to have a place in that rule, right? For example, the 12 disciples were promised by the Lord that they'll be granted the right to sit on 12 thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, in his kingdom. That's what he tells them. Right? Matthew 19, 28. Luke 22, verse 30. Each of the 12 disciples will have some kind of authority over each of the 12 tribal areas of Israel. And listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 34 and chapter 37. It appears that King David is going to have a special place of ruling under the Lord Jesus in the Millennial Kingdom. Ezekiel 34 and 37. I'm not going to go to specific verses, but um, if so, he'd be like a, a prince with a capital P in the kingdom. Okay? Being a ruler under Christ's lordship. Okay? This is maybe the only time where going from king to prince is a, is a promotion and not a demotion. Okay? So Prince David in the Millennial Kingdom. And lastly... We as believers, Christians, rewards, we have the privilege of rulership as the Lord's faithful servants when he returns, according to Luke 19 and Revelation 5, verse 10. It seems that faithful Christians may have this privilege of serving Christ in places of rulership over Gentile nations all over the world. I don't know what that looks like exactly, how many, who, and what, but Revelation 20, verse 4 is also an indication of that. And um, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. So that's the government, okay? Uh, just a very brief description of the government in the kingdom. Let's look at next the physical characteristics of the kingdom. The physical characteristics of the kingdom. The earth as we know it is going to be significantly changed. And... Um, we don't have to worry about you know, things melting or the, the planet overheating or uh, the sun to stop shining and just everything to freeze. Um, it's going to be significantly changed for the better. The curse that has been on creation since the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3, is going to be lifted. Paul, he writes in Romans 8, the creation has suffered and groaned because of the curse, but in the millennial kingdom, it's going to be lifted. Peace. Let's talk about animals for, for a moment. Peace, even in the animal kingdom, which since the fall has been characterized by violence and death and, and just brutality, right? Some of you, along with me, have watched some of those nature shows, right? Or those YouTube clips of um, predators and just animals devouring one another, right? 
Um, some of those get a little, a little creepy, a little scary. Birds just like devouring other birds, for instance. Right? Apparently, in the kingdom, all animals will be plant eaters once again, like they were pre-fall. Pre-fall. Isaiah 11, verse 6 through 9. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9 says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. Also the cow and the bear will graze, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 65, 25 also. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. My holy mountain is his, his land. So, speaking of the land, also the curse being reversed means that the earth will return to its amazing productivity again. Hey, being freed from the thorns and the thistles, right? Far, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, joy to the world. Isaiah 32, back to prophet Isaiah 32, verse 12 to 15. It says, Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness comes, becomes a fertile field and the fertile field is considered as a forest. This is just wonderful. Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2, also says, The wilderness, listen, the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Arabah, the desert. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And then verse 7 says, The scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. And you get that? It's going to be a fertile, just um, growing, thriving, uh, wonderful, just uh, like, like almost like Edenic. Okay, like lots of the earth right now is filled with deserts and just dry and um, not, not productive. But it's going to change. Uh, abundance of water, a fertile land, these dry areas will blossom as the rose. What about disease? Okay, sickness and deformity. Not going not gonna to be the case much in the millennial kingdom. And... Um, Isaiah 33, 24 is a good one there. Let me just read a couple of verses here. Uh, I just read a part, portion of Isaiah 35, but 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. So um, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. You can also jot down Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Ezekiel 34, verse 16. So it seems, since the great healer, the resurrected, glorified Christ, is going to be on the earth, he'll remove disease and physical deformity 
at large, okay, from the earth. So um, interestingly, when Jesus came the first time and he started his ministry, uh, that was an unprecedented time of people getting healed. You know, the land, like all these people were getting, it was, it was remarkable. That's not normal. Okay, that was a certain dispensation of time. Okay, and so in the millennial kingdom, it will be even more like that. Because Isaiah 65.20 says, a uh, hundred years will be considered to be a short life. Right? It means long lifespans um, in the millennial kingdom. Life expectancy will probably be more like uh, several hundred years. Like those who lived in Noah's day. And so that is uh, an aspect of the kingdom. We just want to... All these things are, are for us to look forward to, right? So let's look at, we looked at the physical characteristics. Let's look lastly at the spiritual characteristics of the millennial kingdom. Okay, as amazing as the government is going to be and the rule of the world by Jesus and just all these physical changes, um, which, is, which are hard to imagine for us, or for me at least, but I'm looking forward to all that God says is going to happen. What about the spiritual characteristics? Perhaps this is most remarkable of all, what we should most look forward to. Um, this first phase of Christ's everlasting kingdom, it's going to be an incredibly, wonderfully, uniquely spiritual time. First of all, the risen, glorified Lord Jesus is going to be here. So once again, just trying to imagine Christ actually being on the earth. I don't know if there's going to be news, you know. Uh, what, are, what are any of the, the, the TV news shows going to be about? What, what's going to be on CNN and Fox and all that? I mean, it's got to be Jesus all the time, right? <laughs> like, who cares about anything else? Um, that fact alone sets this time period, this dispensation apart from all other time periods in human history. Uh, the response of the Apostle John upon seeing the glorious Lord was such that he couldn't do anything but just fall down on his knees, a prostrate before the king. And this is going to be the response of all the subjects of the millennial kingdom. Okay, number two, under spiritual characteristics. Remember that Satan is going to be bound for, for that thousand-year period. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. I won't read it again. Okay? But that's in Revelation 20 also. So we should consider, uh, with Satan, along with his demonic forces, removed from their influence, their powers of influence, uh, how much more uniquely spiritual will this, this messianic kingdom dispensation be? It's going to be amazing. And uh, thirdly, Christ millennial reign will be characterized by righteousness. Okay? By righteousness. He's going to be here. Satan's going to be bound in the abyss. And so righteousness is going to characterize the kingdom. Let me read Isaiah 11, for instance. Isaiah 11, verses 4 and 5. It says, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked, and righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Okay, that's leading up to verse 5, which is description of the millennial kingdom. And so this will be the prevailing spiritual atmosphere 
when that happens. He's going to rule with a rod of iron, meaning that sin is going to be dealt with severely. It will be restrained. Recall, too, that when the kingdom begins, only believing Jews and believing Gentiles will be allowed in. Right? The goats are going to be judged. And so they are not uh, perfect or glorified yet, and, um, and yet they're believers. Like, can you imagine a whole earth filled with believers? Like, everyone is, is, is saved. Everyone's converted. Everyone's got a new heart. Everyone wants to love and follow and worship Jesus Christ all together. Okay, it's almost unfathomable. But God says it's going to happen. That's how the millennial kingdom is going to start. And so um, the overall spiritual environment on the earth is going to be where righteousness is the rule and not the exception. Okay, in our world, we're so used to unrighteousness being the rule and righteousness being the exception. And okay, this is going to change in that time. The world is going to be characterized by peace, by joy, a fullness of knowledge of the Lord. It's part of the new covenant promise, Jeremiah 31, 34. And a fullness of the Holy Spirit, Joel chapter 2 again. Just amazing. Okay, the last thing I want to point out about the spiritual characteristics is uh, something I already mentioned. Okay, the universal worship of Jesus Christ. The universal worship of Jesus Christ. Everyone's going to be saved, at least initially, right? And... Um, this worship is going to be centered on that magnificent new temple in Jerusalem. Um, can you imagine just the quality and depth of the spiritual praise and exaltation of the Lord, of all righteous Jews and Gentiles gladly coming before their great Savior, King Jesus? Can we <laughs> fathom that? People are going to worship him from wherever they are, all around the globe. But there's this um, picture also of many coming specifically to Jerusalem to offer up their worship to Christ the King. And uh, there's plenty of scriptures that, that talk about that. But the scenes described in those passages, uh, it's nothing short of awesome. It's absolutely awesome. If you're a believer, you're probably like me, and you can't wait for the Lord Jesus to be praised and loved and worshipped and glorified and bowed down to, to that extent with the temple in Jerusalem at the center, it's going to be like a, a spiritual magnet, okay, drawing people to magnify Jesus Christ. And so that is the spiritual characteristics of the kingdom, and we just highlighted uh, a few things there. Right? So um, the initial plan was to have our last point be the eternal state, which um, maybe it'll, it'll somehow overlap into our Christmas sermon next Sunday. But uh, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the entire Bible, tell us about the eternal state. And maybe you can um, uh, read that on your own this week. But lastly, as we wrap this up, I want to give you some concluding thoughts. Okay, just some concluding thoughts uh, to put our minds around uh, as, we, as we end this series. Um, thinking about the purposes for, for prophecy. What is the purpose of eschatology? Uh, I've already mentioned some things, but uh, and we have our principle, right, throughout this whole series uh, for our faith and faithfulness to be, to be there. But besides that, besides holy living, okay, besides holiness, which is a, a major part of the purpose of prophecy, uh, I want to offer three final things here that, that teaches us 
Okay, prophecy, eschatology teaches us and reminds us of these three very, very important truths for life. Okay? So um, listen up, folks. Bear with me. It's our, our last three here. Okay, the first thing is this. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. In a world that seems increasingly uh, to be just going off the rails, right, in the throes of wickedness and irrationality, and immorality, we must remember that our God sovereignly controls it all. Prophets of old declared God's sovereignty over and over, and they also over and over say that he's not a respecter of persons or power or politics. Isaiah, once again the great prophet Isaiah, proclaimed that the almighty creator of this world is not impressed with supposedly great and powerful people and nations and rulers. He's not. To God, they are as dust on the scales or a drop from a bucket. He wrote, Isaiah wrote as God's mouthpiece, I will accomplish all my purposes. Which, of course, includes the end times. right? All the things that he's, he's promised and, and have not yet been fulfilled. John Piper said, quote, The reason God knows the future is because... He plans and accomplishes the future, end quote. God is the king of the universe who reigns both now and forever. Satan, once again, is called the god of this world, but guess who gave him that title? <laughs> guess who gave him that very temporary title? In reality, the devil cannot, does not, will not dictate what happens on this planet. He is unquestionably under the sovereign hand of God. So studying eschatology reminds us that God's promises for the future will surely come to pass. It's more certain than the sun rising tomorrow simply because God said it will come to pass. So it will be done. The second thing, as we conclude here, is that God is not only sovereign, but God is good. God is good, as in just. I mean, good in, in all its aspects. But It's tempting for us at times and easy at other times, especially in times of suffering or sorrow or difficulty or life not going our way. Or again, just watching the ways of this world, just going down the toilet. For us to get caught up in all the bad things, right? We can get caught up in the sad things, the tragic things, the unjust things. Hey, we hear uh, on the news of a a drunken driver hitting a, a mom and her baby, taking their lives. A sexual abuse of children by relatives of the family, even. A sudden death of, college, uh, of a college student's son whose heart just inexplicably stopped beating. Here we could go on and on, right? Prophecy in the Bible reminds us of God's goodness by clearly showing that he has written the final chapter on our condition, on the human condition, on everything. Okay? Currently, it includes great pain and suffering, and grief, but if this is just the way life is, and life in this world is the best there is, one could maybe fairly challenge the idea that God is good and loving. But when we study the end game and know what God's plan is for his dear children, it puts everything in perspective, at least it should. And it shows us with crystal clear clarity that God is so good, he's incredibly good, and he's good all the time. He will rightly punish evil, folks. He will. 
He's going to punish every evil deed, every person, with unfathomable wrath and deserved fury. He's also going to ultimately bless those who believe him with unimaginable riches of his goodness and grace. Let me quote uh, John Piper again. Listen to this. He defines providence as, Providence is purposeful sovereignty. God knows exactly what he's doing. He has purposes for doing it. And his purposes are infinitely wise, loving, and good. End quote. Taking us home to heaven to be with him forever, that is the ultimate good. It's in our Father's house that he will, we will experience full, unhindered fellowship and worship of him, totally free from tears and death and all the ravages that come with sin. Bible prophecy, studying eschatology, shouts out that God is good. Lastly, God is sovereign, God is good, and God gives us hope. God gives us hope. Since God is the one who has revealed the end of the story to us, we are assured that all of this is not just wishful thinking on our part. Hey, there's a world of unbelievers out there, folks, who, who um, can accuse us of that or just look down upon us for uh, a pie-in-the-sky just uh, perspective on things, right? Those silly Christians. But we as believers look ahead with confident expectation that the God who has already accomplished scores and scores of things predicted in the Bible, he's going to accomplish everything else he's promised to do. So our hearts should be filled with hope. A very real joy, pleasure, and glory are coming. And they're wrapped up in this guarantee that we as believers look ahead to. Right? That's what Paul wrote to Titus in, in uh, Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, Titus 2.13. So, Revelation 19, verse 7. It's yet future, and it's as the marriage um, of, the, of the Lamb happens. It, it says there, let us rejoice and be glad. And that's yet future, but those words remind us to have hope because truly, the best is yet to come. And this is not the best there is, dear ones. The best is yet ahead. He has told us what we need to know about the end. And this is why we sing joy to the, to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for giving us all that we need to know about the end. You haven't told us everything, God. Some things you've left uh, purposefully um, just shrouded as the secret things of, of the Lord belong to you. But we're grateful, God, for everything you've told us. And uh, it does remind us, God, of, of your sovereignty and of your goodness and the hope that we have because your word cannot be broken. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not anything of your word will pass away. So thank you for that promise, God, and thank you for uh, this time together uh, that we can be caused once again to live life more faithfully because of your faithfulness to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.